and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Neil Phillips. And we're now on to episode 39. And a little bit later on, we're going to be chatting about tawny owls. But first, I think we need to start with some sightings. So do you want to kick us off, Neil, with your sightings? Uh, yeah, like, well, we're recording on the 1st of February and like a lot of other people did the big gun birdwatch here in the Phillips household. And well, I say we, it was mostly me. Not surprising, really, because I sat there for half an hour and saw nothing. The weather wasn't terrible, but uh, in the end, I got 14 sparrows and a female chaffinch, and that was it. So not the most uh, interesting big garden bird watch. Like most people, the birds seem to go absent as soon as you start the bird watch, but there we go. Um, and also, I did some work at work, <laughs> like you do. Uh, we were making a big dead hedge, and found quite a bit of fungus. We found some nice jelly ear fungus on the elder there. But also some nice scarlet elf cups, the biggest ones I've ever seen. It was, you know, two inches, five centimetres across one of them, which was quite nice. Uh, not the most photogenic ones, unfortunately, but, you know, it's nice to see a bit of bright red colour in the middle of winter. Any sightings for you, Vic? Um, well, I, I too attempted to partake in the big garden bird watch. I saw a grand total of absolutely nothing um, <laughs> because Saturday here, it was wet and windy all day. And then Sunday, it was cold in the morning and then it snowed all afternoon. So I saw nothing. Um, now, I don't actually feed the birds in my garden because we have someone a few doors down that feeds them. But almost every single day, I at least see, you know, some sparrows and some starlings and the old great tit and whatever. They come down to uh, drink and use the bird baths. But I swear they know when it's big garden bird watch weekends and nothing came at all. Yeah, not not even a pigeon. That is how bad it was. Um, so that was a, a bit of a damp squid, really. Uh, but other than that, the snowdrops are out in the wooded valley behind my house. Um, it's actually the earliest they've ever been out here, certainly since I've lived here, uh, by at least a couple of weeks. Uh, they, they are out and flowering, uh, which I was quite surprised at. The other sighting that I've got is I actually have a lesser celandine in my front garden. A little bit of a surprise to me. Couldn't work out what it was to start with because it... It's um, it doesn't look like your typical sundine. The, the petals are a little bit thicker, but actually doing some research, there's four varieties of it. So, uh, yeah, that's actually really nice. I, I haven't planted it. It has actually just appeared. So, you know, my, my front garden is definitely turning into a lovely little uh, wildflower patch. So I can't wait to see what else appears uh, later on this year. Um, but other than that, that's about it, really. Not been an awful lot going on here. Yeah, I can't really report much else. <laughs> but yes, the podcast itself has been doing very well. We've had a record number of downloads in January for a month. So uh, yeah, thanks everybody, as always, for liking and sharing. I think a few people have joined the uh, listenership, shall we say. So hello to you. And yes, well, hello to our regular listeners as well. I don't want any feeling left out. But <laughs> um, yeah, but we've had some feedback as well, haven't we, Vic? Yeah, we have. Uh, we have Ellie of Ellie's Wellies um, was in touch and she dropped us a message just to say how much she loved our podcast. Uh, her and her partner and colleague, Ben, are professional organic gardeners in Nottingham and they've been educating themselves about UK wildlife more and more in the last few years. And your podcast is one of the ways we've been doing this. So thank you. You've even inspired us to start our own podcast and they've called it the Wildlife Garden Podcast. So wishing Ellie and Ben all the very best with that. Yeah, thank you so much for your lovely comments. And hopefully maybe we can do an exchange on each other's podcasts at some point. Yeah, she also left a comment about how she liked to 
hear about the experiences of 30-year-olds, which uh, I pointed out her error, to much of my amusement. Um, but we'll move swiftly on from there. Before I am you can so, say I'm going to remember this for when you turn 40. I know, but I've still got a few years. To, yes, so, you know, that's because that, it's coming back at you with interest. Yeah. To paraphrase Homer Simpson, that's future Neil's problem. <laughs> with interest. <laughs> Uh-oh. Right. That doesn't sound threatening at all. Now, moving swiftly on, um, Mark Eastman, at Mark Eastman on Twitter, put up a post on Twitter. He was doing the Big Garden Bird Watch, and he said, Big Garden Bird Watch time with a cup of tea, a UK wildlife pod, and the snow. So that's quite good listening to us while doing the bird watch. That sounds like a good plan to me. Yeah, and he's actually uh, not too far from me. So it's, yeah, yeah, it did snow quite a lot in this area. Yeah, we had no snow here. We haven't had any snow at all, actually, I don't think. I think we had a little bit of really half-frozen sleet a couple of weeks ago when everyone else had snow. But here in South Essex, it's been pretty much snow-free. But now we're going to move on to a, no a new section of sorts. We're going to do your sightings. So we're going to hope to integrate a bit more of your sightings into the show as much as we can. So... I think you're going to kick off, aren't you, Vic? I am. And this, our first one is from Michael Rogers, and this is from the Facebook group. And he's seen 300 frogs in a weedy pond in his local park in South Wales. We always love to hear about your frog sightings, especially at this time of year. It's breeding season. Um, mm -hmm. But not just that. I've actually noticed there's a fair few reports of frog spawn coming in now as well. And we'll put the links up to this, but there is, uh, you can go online and actually log your spawn sightings so they can keep track of it. But keep letting us know. Let us know what your frogs and toads are doing. Yeah. We've also had sightings from Annie Sutcliffe. I believe that was Facebook as well. Um, she's thrilled to find these bee orchid rosettes on a local road verge. And she had a nice picture of them. And she says she's going to be keeping an eye on them and hoping they flower later in the year. Yeah, it might be worth uh, just letting your local council, whoever owns that verge, try and let them know. Because um, quite often if they, they'll get mowed because nobody knows they're there. So when you find things like that, it's always good to try and at least flag them up. They might still get mowed, but at least you've done what you can then. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I must remember to message Annie. Or if you listen to this before I've done it. <laughs> there you go. And we've also had a couple others. Ray Hamlet, who's Ray of Solia, S-O-L-E-I-L. He -L -L, um, said, big fan of the show. And he's responding to my request for your um, big garden birdwatch sightings. He said he had lots of sparrows active in the garden, taking sunflower hearts eagerly. Uh, but he also had wrens, blue tits, great tits, goldfinch, starling, and a grey squirrel on the hawthorn tree. So, yeah, making me jealous. And Graham, as in Naturally Curious UK Graham, who's a regular on this show, a regular listener, uh, one of the original few as well, wasn't he? He was, um, yeah. He's uh, a friend of mine as well. He had some good sightings. He had a Dunnock, 15. He even beat my number of sparrows. He had 15 house sparrows, which is my 14. So his starlings turned up, unlike mine, along with his great tits and blue tits. Um, he had a robin, a magpie, wood pigeon, and carrion crow. And bear in mind, he lives inside Greater London. I think that's a pretty good list. Better than my list of zilch. Yep. Well, not hard. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that's pretty good. It's quite interesting, actually, talking about people's sightings. I've actually noticed... There's been a fair few records of people yeah, doing the Big Gone Bird Watch this weekend of basically looking out and there's a sparrowhawk sat around <laughs> their bird feeders. They know as well. They think, how can I sabotage their bird watch? Because as a sparrowhawk at any other time of year, you'll be like, whoa, brilliant. Um, but in a bird watch, it means the birds are all going to disappear for at least half an hour yeah. <laughs> after the sparrowhawk's gone. So uh, and There's been a few pictures where they're actually sitting in amongst the bird feeders. Oh, I saw a few of those. That was brilliant. Uh, I'd, I'd love to have a sparrowhawk set on my bird feeders. 
They always just pass through in my garden, which means I won't be able to tick it. But there we go. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to see the RSVP data on that. That'd be quite good. Who's got a sparrowhawk? And if that tends to be sort of, you know, all they've got is just one sparrowhawk, how often that occurred? Mm. That'd be quite interesting. That would be interesting. Right. Well, now we're going to move on to the news. And I think you're going to kick us off with the news this week, aren't you? Yes. Some of you might have seen the government saying with great glee that they're going to be stopping the badger coal. That was the headline. But uh, Rosie Woodroff, who's a senior research fellow at ZSL and is very active on Twitter with Badger Coal News, was quick to point out that they were covering up the Badger Coal numbers with that news. It doesn't mean there's going to be no culling after 2022 when they claim they're going to stop. It means no new licenses after that year. But the culling itself, because the licenses go on for a number of years, won't stop until 2026. So the culling's actually going to go on for another five or six years, depending on how you count it. But DEFRA are consulting on the possibility of halting it after two years. So that'd be 2024. But she's crunched the numbers to see what that would mean for the next few years. And she assumed that Natural England would issue 10 new licences for average-sized coal areas in 2021 and 10 more in 2022, because that's what roughly what they've done on average each year with them having this coal. And that would lead to a total of 276,000 badgers having been killed in these coals. Or if they stopped it after two years, it'd still be 256,000, which is a lot of badgers. It's a um, awful lot of badgers. There's already reports of local extinctions. and um, there's Now, this is pinch of salt time, but there's people claiming that where there were badgers before the coals, they're now getting planning permission to build things and do various things that you can't do when badgers are restricting it. So, uh, yes, there's lots of uh, cynical... Um, suggestions being made shall we say and i'll leave it at that next one and this is uh, some of you may have actually seen this the uk government backs birth control for gray squirrels to stop damage to the forestry and aid efforts to tackle climate change uh, and this is a news story on uh, bbc news and like all of these we'll put links up so you can go and read them for yourself and the uk squirrel association has been experimenting with ways to deliver oral contraceptives to squirrels for over three years now. And last year, it tested a special woodland in East Yorkshire. And they tested it by lacing some hazelnut paste bait with a dye that, when ingested, causes the squirrel's hair to fluoresce under UV light. Um, and, and they placed this in feeding stations designed so that only grey squirrels could gain access. And more than 90% of the grey squirrel population <laughs> being studied had actually visited the traps. Um, they concluded that it was possible to deliver repeat doses of a contraceptive to the majority of grey squirrels in a wood. Now, you know, obviously, this does raise some concerns. When the story was released, concerns were, were raised about the potential harm of putting hormones in the environment. So hormones from birth control pills do end up in sewage. It gets into the rivers. Uh, it causes issues with fish reproduction and may even affect human fertility. And I know there's been concerns about the effect on amphibian populations as well as a result. And, this, and we're talking at this point, this is the effects from human contraceptive pill. There's also further concerns that, you know, what would there be an effect on predators like goshawks and pine martins, which may ingest the hormone and could it then make them infertile? At this point, it's speculation. We don't know which hormone is being is actually involved in it and if it will only affect the kind of the squirrel and will it break down quickly potentially a good thing because it does mean there's no culling of squirrels but i think further information is definitely needed for this one but you know maybe a possible way forward yeah it's an interesting one that 
personally, I'm still in favour of just introducing more um, pie martins and encouraging goshawks. You know, <laughs> that seems to be largely solving the problem of grey squirrels at the moment. But uh, there we go. The problem with that is um, the fact that they start talking about forestry suggests they're doing it for commercial reasons rather than conservation reasons to me. But um, yes, that, that hopefully more will come out of that story as time goes on and we'll find out more. But uh, talking of vested interests, that was quite a good link for me. <laughs> um, with the news that we're now up to I think it's 38 or 39, I'll lose track, hen harriers now being missing or found dead or satellite tags mysteriously stopping over grouse moors. Raptor Persecution UK, by doing a Freedom of Information request to Natural England, found that three of the satellite tagged hen harriers disappeared off the earth in 2020, one next to a grouse moor in North Yorkshire, one on a grouse moor in the Yorkshire Dales National Park, and one in an undisclosed location in Northumberland, or at least it wasn't Yorkshire for once, um, which may or may not have been a grouse moor. It is known these three disappearances for four months, but absolutely nothing had been said about them. Why is that? So uh, why are Natural England sitting on that information? But interestingly, um, there's another twist with Natural England and hen harriers. Turns out that BASC, the British Association for Shooting and Conservation, gave... £10,000 Natural England support to Natural England field workers to monitor hen harrier winter roost sites. But there was a clause with this money, like the agreement that they gave them the money for, which meant Natural England could not say anything basically that made Basque look bad. So uh, whether that's linked to the above, I don't know. But yeah, that just is a little bit iffy. Government Association can't say so if someone from Bass was involved in raptor persecution it turned out not that i'm saying that anyone has been just to be clear you know if anyone lawyers are listening <laughs> um they wouldn't necessarily be able to say so under the agreement i mean it's a bit of one of those how do you interpret it things but uh, that was a rather interesting turn of events shall we say um and i've heard something interesting that apparently there might have been persecution at some of these winter roosts we don't know if it's the same ones they're monitoring because uh, there's no way you can monitor all the roosts but uh yeah, not looking good for hen harriers. Of course, all the usual suspects um, are going around boasting about um, how many chicks were fledged from grouse moors uh, with hen harriers, which we should acknowledge. But they take off and then get shot or poisoned afterwards. I mean, what sort of achievement is that, really? But moving on, uh, on the subject of shooting still, uh, a new paper has come out from Blackburn and Gaston that literally came out in the last couple of weeks. The paper shows that nearly half of all UK bird biomass is non-native pheasants. That's at, in August when at the peak release and there's 40 plus million, which varies from year to year, are released into our countryside. So they worked out when you add the 3.7% of biomass, which is red leg partridge, and 48.8%, um, which is common pheasant, that leaves only 47.5% of British birds being other species. So that includes non-native Canada geese, which is a bit of a chunk of that as well. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's quite shocking, really. Um, and they did when you read through the paper, they do say, again, we don't know what the full impact of this is because as we've discussed, we've discussed pheasants many times. You go back and listen to other episodes, listen to the Yolo Williams episode, Nick Baker episode. We discussed this and land is set aside for the pheasants. And they do, you know, that they do feed the pheasants as well. So they're not eating all the wild food at the same time. But it's what impact do they have on reptiles seems to be one of the big things. And that's something people have been saying for years, despite the fact that wild justice has been highlighted recently. That has been a concern for many years. I've got one more quick story I'm going to mention. Bird watchers and nature photographers like myself that live in Essex have basically been told to stay at home. 
and leave you and you can go out for a walk, but you're not allowed to take your binoculars. Uh, someone was stopped, I believe it was at Wat Tyler Country Park, which is an old haunt of mine, uh, by the police and asked what he was doing with a telescope and binoculars. And he said, well, we're watching. No, you're not allowed to do that under COVID restrictions. You can only go for exercise and that is not covered. Seeking clarity, a few people have contacted the police and they have been told if he walks out with his binoculars and telescope and are caught, they could be fined under current COVID restrictions. As far as I know, no one else has been told this in any other county, but that's how Essex Police have chosen to interpret it. Some people are, set, uh, are moaning the RSVB should be doing something about it, but they're a conservation body. I mean, may, maybe you could argue, but I think that's a bit silly. There's also a case of a photographer in Essex was photographing a waterfall and was told to move on by police. I believe all these people have been told to move on are amateurs. I think if they were professionals, they might be able to say they were working. So perhaps... I mean, I might be able to say that, but I've just been staying inside. Um, yeah, from I mean, work. The, the guidelines are that, you know, you can mm. go to work if you cannot work from home. So, yeah, yeah I think if you are a professional nature or wildlife yeah. photographer, it's different because that that is actually your job. Um, that's your I don't work. want to start going down that rabbit hole <laughs> of no. COVID regulations too much, um, even though that's what this story is about. But the ridiculous thing about this, other than it just being a bit ridiculous, if you ask me, um, the the whole basis of it is is because you stand still to bird watch. But you know, if you're in the middle of a field and there's no one around you, or even if you're in a country park and there's no one near you, you know, under what we're told, that should be fine. But I don't blame the police for this personally. I think they've basically been given some rules to interpret, and that's how it's interpreted them. You know, they've got a hard job to do. I'm not having to go at the police here. I will very rarely do that. Only extreme circumstances, but. This is where it gets really ridiculous. The Angling Trust lobbied the government and got an exemption for fishing. So if you stay within, I think it's five miles of your house, you can go and sit by a riverbank all day. You can't night fish, so there's obviously restrictions, but you can sit at a bank, not move all day. And this is for mental health reasons, which I fully support. I think that's totally valid. Um, as long as we're sticking to these, you know, not moving around. If you're sitting by a bank and people aren't getting too close to you, you're not a danger to anyone else. Excellent. You know, obviously you've got symptoms, you stay at home as well, as usual. Brilliant. There's also no exemption for shooting, and this isn't work shooting. This is shooting animals for fun, which I guess helps your mental health. I suppose if you're doing certain shooting, you'll be walking around as well. But people are saying, why is there no exemption for bird watchers and photographers? And I guess it's because those two activities have licenses, I suppose, which can be revoked. But I guess I think the main reason is because we don't. Ha there isn't a body that represents bird watchers, is there? There's conservation organisations, and maybe you could argue, um, you know, some of the amateur photographer groups or something like that should have been uh, campaigning. But yeah, I've, I've been waiting for someone else to start a petition. To be honest, <laughs> nobody has yet. Uh, it'll probably all be over by the time the government would sort that out. But um, yeah, it just seems a bit of a weird. I can kind of understand why the police are doing it, but it's just weird that only Essex are doing it. It's yeah, but yeah, just look out for that, guys. If you're out bird watching or doing photography, you might get stopped. Not really much to add to that, is there? Really, not, not really. Um, I, I did. I'll have to see if I can dig it out. I think there was some information somewhere else I found on another group about oh. uh, what is legally allowed, photographically yeah. oh, speaking, during amateur lockdown. photographer, didn't it? I think it was. So, yeah. yeah um, but, but the most ridiculous thing about this is um, people with cameras have been stopped. But I think it's Chelmsford Council running a photography competition for photos taken on your lockdown exercise. <laughs> Talk about mixed messages. Mm. <laughs> but there we go. Okay, so I've 
we've got another kind of this is actually a follow-up uh we have we did touch on this a couple of episodes ago and it was uh it's a follow-up to the wildlife trust taking legal action against the uk government over its decision to allow pesticide that's almost entirely banned in the eu so following brexit the government approved the emergency use of one neonicotinoid to combat a disease in sugar beet by killing the aphids that transmit it, which in 2018, the EU banned. So the Wildlife Trust has told Environment Secretary George Eustace of their intention to challenge the decision with judicial review unless the government can prove it has acted lawfully. This permission was granted after being requested by the NFU when they got farmers to email to avoid public finding out about the campaign. The government says the change in policy is based on new evidence but they haven't made this science public. So Craig Bennett, Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust, has said the government refused a request for emergency authorization in 2018, and we want to know what's changed. Where's the new evidence that it's okay to use this extremely harmful pesticide? Using neonicotinoids not only threatens bees, but also extremely harmful to aquatic wildlife because the majority of the pesticide leaches into the soil and then into our waterways. Worse still, farms are being recommended to use weed killer to kill wildflowers in and around sugar beet crops in a misguided attempt to prevent harm to bees in the surrounding area. This is a double blow for nature. It was the Victoria Prentice, a minister for the DEFRA, that told the BBC News that it wasn't ideal, but she was convinced it was appropriate and that the government was committed to reducing pesticide use and integrated pest management. <laughs> Good on the World Trust to say on that one. Yeah. Um. Yeah, because because I know bug life have been kicking up a fuss. The Wildlife Trust have got a bit more clout, so uh, yeah, that's what, that's what you need. I and mean, yeah, people moan at Wildlife Trust and RSVB for not getting involved in stuff like this. So well done to them, I'm going to say yeah. on that. And I, I do love the whole oh well, the new science. What new science? Oh, we can't tell you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's not let's not mention the following the science phrase, shall we? Um, yes, I think <laughs> it's too contentious at the moment. And I think you've got our last news story for this episode. This one I thought initially was a follow-up to the previous story about a dog attacking a deer in Richmond Park. But no, this is another case of it. So an owner's been fined £600 for letting his dog kill a deer. And there's a video available online. It's a bit distressing to watch, to be quite honest. Basically, two cyclists come along and this dog is just harassing this deer that's sitting on the ground. You can't actually see it, but I think it has bitten the poor deer. And these brilliant cyclists, they do try and get their bike but they use their bike to try and shield the deer from the dog which you know full credit to them um it's actually a camera on one of these bikes that is showing what's going on and yeah the, the deer tries to run off and the dog just runs around the cyclists and chases after the deer no sign of the owner on the video now the owner has said in a statement he was genuinely shocked and sorry for what happened and has since refrained completely from letting alfie which is a dog off the lead in any park i have also taken a special dog trainer specialized in gun dogs to control more accurately any of his hunting instincts he has made great progress you know little late really isn't it but the royal parks have said that four deer have died from dog attacks in the royal parks since march 2020 so that's going to be bushy in richmond park while there have been 58 incidents of dogs chasing herds so that's just what's been reported a big increase on previous years according to the manager of richmond park simon richards has said it's imperative that owners ensure their dogs are under control at all times it's illegal for a dog to chase deer in richmond and bushy park and owners may face prosecution if caught as demonstrated here and I think a lot of the increase is due to new dog owners. And if anyone's been seeing the news recently, um, a lot of people have bought dogs, sometimes from 
rather dodgy puppy readers uh, during the lockdown for companionship. And when they all started going back to work for Christmas, the poor old shelters were overrun with dogs where people were like, oh, I can't handle it now. I'm not home all the time. <sighs> but, uh, poor blooming dogs. Um, yeah, so the, the, the owner of the dog uh, pleaded guilty at Wimbledon Magistrates Court. And all his orders to pay was £604 cost back in September. So if you think £600, I mean, we shouldn't judge people from where they come from. But um, yeah, I think £600 to a lot of people in Kingston is going to be a drop in the ocean, really, isn't it? But hopefully some people get the message and, you know, the idea of their precious little pooch killing an animal might put them off. But, you know, the most of them think, oh, it's just playing. Not most of them. I shouldn't say most of them. That's not fair. But there are a lot that will just think they're just playing. Well, as a kind or, of like, in addition to this, I have yeah. I have seen there's be there's actually been a huge increase in the number of dog attacks on sheep in the last year as well. Oh yeah, um, which is yes. devastating for the farmers. Absolutely devastating for the farmers. Um, because people not keeping dogs on needs and going into fields when they shouldn't be. So I can't remember if we covered it on the podcast, but over the summer there was because uh, sheep are used. Um, in conservation grazing sometimes, like especially for blue butterflies and stuff. Yeah. And uh, there was somewhere, I think they ended up taking the sheep off the field because too many were getting attacked. Mm. Um, but just people just walk their dog off a lead. They think, you know, walk around that lord in a manner and don't think they should have to control the animal. And the Nepis state had problems with dogs off leads this year as well. And there's a, a paper came out uh, again this week, I think it was, showing that dogs disturb <laughs> again on, I think this was on a, a seashore setting, uh, dogs disturb more than people on their own but we ha- we will have an episode on dogs and wildlife um, i've been doing plenty of research on that but um yeah and one on cats for balance yeah, we, we, <laughs> well. we will cover that in detail in yeah. a couple of episodes later on in the year for sure yeah i think we're going to do them back to back i think it's the plan yeah. but yes but talking of main topics now on to this episode's We've decided to do tawny owls for this episode because actually, you know, this time of year is quite a good time of year to hear them. I mean, I, I hear my tawny owls here. Um, you would have like heard me kind of, um, you know, in the in the sight in my sightings talking about I've got two pairs of tawny owls that I can hear uh, in different different areas, and it's a good time of year to hear them actually. So we thought we'd give you some good old facts and information about a much loved bird, I'd say. So the tawny owl is one of five species of owl we have in the UK, and it is the most widespread. So the scientific name, Strix aluco, is actually derived from Greek and Italian. So Strix is from the Greek, meaning owl, and aluco comes from the Italian, aluco, meaning tawny owl. And these owls are also known as brown owls, and sometimes even called ivy owls, due to being frequently seen roosting in amongst ivy in large trees. They're quite stocky, robust owls, measuring up to about 40 centimetres in height and with a wingspan of 94 to 105 centimetres and weighing in at around 330 to 590 grams. The tawny owl, as with most birds of prey, shows reverse sexual dimorphism. And amongst the European owls, the tawny owl actually ranks as the fourth most dimorphic by weight, with females being around 25% heavier than the males and ranks fifth by wingspan. Now, in the UK, we have around 50,000 breeding pairs across England, Scotland, and Wales. They're absent from Ireland and some of the islands around the UK. They are predominantly woodland birds and are normally found in broadleaf woodlands, but can also be seen in parks and urban areas if there are suitable large trees. They are territorial, and once they've set up a territory, 
they'll rarely leave for the remainder of their lives. And most new territories set up by the younger owls are actually in close proximity to those of their parents. The tawny owls are monogamous and typically mate for life, although there are records of polygamous males. They establish their nest holes in trees, but will also use nest boxes, holes in buildings and disused nest holes of other birds. Now, when autumn starts to turn into winter at the transitional time, they'll establish finally their territories and they start their pre-breeding behaviour. So the male will defend the territory while the female defends the nest hole. And it's not uncommon for territorial fights to break out with other males and females that are trying to get in. As winter progresses, the male and female will roost together and they start courtship feeding. And after mating, the female will lay two to three eggs, about 48 hours apart in the late spring, which can be a bit earlier in London, um, where they'll certainly, certainly central London parks, they breed and yeah, they're breeding sort of December there. The eggs are incubated for about 30 days by the female. Once hatched, the male will bring in more food to the nest um, or to the female close by. The female will only leave the nest once the owlets are around six, seven days old, and then she'll only leave to hunt. Um, the owlets fledge about 35 to 39 days, at which point they will spend several days on the branches around the nest, a behaviour that is known as branching. During this time, the adults will continue to feed them and will sometimes feed them for up to three months. Now, tawny owls breed at around one year of age, uh, with the average lifespan in the wild being about four years, though there are records from ringing data of one wild one living for over 23 years. Survival in the first year is only 30%, but it's 74% year to year for adult birds, and that's kind of a fairly common thing in a lot of bird species. Now, the classic twit-woo um, we associate with um, tawny owls is an overlap of the male and female calling. So the majority of the time, we hear the male calling and his calls serve as territorial courtship and to announce to the female he's bringing in food. Um, now, the twit is usually the male, but it can be the female sometimes and the male says the woo bit at the end. Um, but because the overlap, it's hard to tell which is calling. And one little known fact of sorts is um, that they don't court in the rain because it's too wet to woo. Oh, tumbleweed. Yeah, had to let him get that one in there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but tawny owls are actually nocturnal, using sight and hearing to, to locate their prey, which mainly consists of mice and voles, but they will take frogs and invertebrates as well. And as nocturnal predators, tawny owls have several adaptations that help them to locate their prey. So let's start with their eyes. Their eyes are at the front of their heads and they have a field overlap of about 50 to 70%, giving the owl better binocular vision than that of diurnal birds of prey that have around a 30 to 50% overlap. The retina of the eye has around 56,000 light sensitive rod cells per square millimetre. And these closely packed rod cells combined with an absence of cone cells and large tubular eyes help them to hunt successfully at night. But it's not just their eyes that are adapted to night hunting. They have two ear openings that differ in structure and are asymmetrically placed to improve directional hearing. They have a passage through their skull that links the eardrums and a small difference in the time of arrival of a sound at each ear enables the owl to pinpoint the location of the sound. So this will be like a rustle of a mouse or something on the woodland floor. Both ears are actually hidden under the facial disc feathers, which are structurally specialised to be transparent to sound and are supported by a movable fold of skin known as the preaural flap. Now, tawny owls do have natural predators in the form of larger birds of prey, 
And pine martins have been known to raid the nests for eggs where you've got that overlap of tawny owls and pine martins. The chicks themselves are actually vulnerable to foxes, cats and dogs. And this is especially if they fall from the trees when branching. And we should say, you know, quite often, you know, I've seen reports of people saying they've seen tawny owls on the floor. They're actually adapted to be able to climb back up the tree. They have incredibly sharp um, talons and a beak that if they do fall out, they can actually climb back up the tree again. So the best thing to do is actually, you know, leave them, maybe observe them from a distance. Um, and you'll probably see if you're far enough away, you might actually see the parent come in. Um, so, you know, just in case you're out and about and you see that. Now, despite knowing a fair amount about tawny owls, there are still gaps in our knowledge. And in particular, this is an understanding of their habitat associations and how changes in woodland management and increasing urbanization might affect them. And this is, you know, so we still need to do a lot of research on this. We, we don't know really what will happen moving forward. But away from the biological aspects of the tawny owl, the owl is one animal that has so many contradictory beliefs surrounding them being regarded with fascination and awe. Now, over the centuries, they've been feared, venerated, despised, admired, worshipped, considered both wise and foolish, and associated with witchcraft, medicine, weather, birth, and death. Now, in the Middle Ages, the owl had become an associate with witches and an inhabitant of the dark and lonely places. And the owl's appearance at night was linked to the unknown and its call associated with the danger of imminent death. However, zoological research on the tawny owl in the 18th century has largely dispelled the mystery surrounding them, and by the 20th century, much of the superstition had died out in the West. Now, in other cultures across the world, owls in general are actually seen as protectors and symbols of good luck and good omens if they appear to you in a dream, unless they screech in your dream. Mm. Now, you know, when researching for this, it was would have been easy to write so much more, but I'm pretty sure you didn't want a seven hour episode on tawny owls. So we uh, <laughs> cut it short at that point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we didn't even touch on, well, my favorite fact or myth about owls is the whole wise old owl when they're actually among the stupidest of birds, certainly in brain size, because their, their head's full of eyeballs, mm. two eyeballs and not much room for a brain. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, Oh, stuff we could have covered. I mean, I found a few papers. Um, there was one on how they adapt to urban environments. So I've, I've mentioned in London, they breed a lot earlier because it's a lot warmer, but that counts for a lot of species. But in urban areas, they tend to take more roosting passerine small birds. So, you know, your, your little great tit sitting in the tree. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, they, uh, especially when sort of the other food runs a bit short. Yeah, they'll take out small birds. I remember reading that for the first time and being sure, owls don't eat birds. That can't be right. But nope, they do. And tawny owls are the sort of specialists of that. Yeah, they're probably the most common in gardens as well, aren't they? Tawny owls, I reckon. Yeah, I think so. And it is, it's um, because they don't tend to leave their territory once it's set up. There's, mm. um, you know, there's quite a lot of um, information out there that you, their, their success in hunting is in part actually down to the fact that they have you know, a small territory that they live in their entire lives. So they know it mm. incredibly well. You know, it's like us living in the same area most of our lives. We know that area. We know shortcuts. We know footpaths. And it'll it'll be very similar for the tawny owls, for sure, as long as it doesn't yeah. change. Yeah, I mean, uh, in normal times, I'd be suggesting people in the southeast uh, head down into London to, uh, is it Hyde Park or Kensington Gardens? 
one of those two royal parks um they're both butt onto each other um if you check out like the local sightings page or look out for another bird watcher because there's usually a couple kicking around um there's some that sit youngsters they sit in the tree around this time every year because so, you can still see because the leaves are on the trees um and they've they've already fledged and sitting out and they're branching at least if they're not fledged so uh Good old tawny owls. And I once was shown some really low down in a hedge in Regent's Park and I looked up and there's a, a pair of eyes looking back down at me on this little fluffy chick. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll share some of those pictures together this episode. So there we yeah, go. But... One of our, I think most, it's actually my favourite owl that we have in this country. I have to. Mm, I think long-eared scare for me. Simply because I worked somewhere with them. And little, everyone likes little owls and barn owls. That's almost like trendy to like them yeah. <laughs> like a good shorty though i think yeah. maybe you know the oh. tawny owls for me because i can actually you know if i learn when i lay in bed at night i actually hear them calling out the back um mm. which is just lovely i think that's actually a species i've seen the least i've seen long-eared more than tawnies isn't that saying so i've only ever seen tawnies apart from that the london ones um flying past on bat surveys and I think that shows, you know, how, how secretive they are. I mean, you know, we, mm. we will hear them more than we will see them. And they are strictly nocturnal, whereas particularly in summer, you will see barn owls hunting at dawn and dusk and sometimes during the day. And with our other yeah. owl species, you know, they, they tend to be more yeah. kind of crepuscular anyway. But the tawny owl is strictly yeah. nocturnal and an inhabitant of, of woodland. So unless you know where to look, you wouldn't necessarily yeah. see them. Yeah, I think that's a good place to finish up. Um... Just final news. Um, I should apologise that there's been no UK wildlife podcast lives. Um, I was planning to do, I think I've missed three of them now. Um, just lots going on uh, in this month for both of us. So we, But we, we are planning to come to do some very soon. Um, we've got a guest hopefully lined up for one uh, when he's next free, talking about wildlife photography ethics. And when it um, doesn't and, clash with the Six Nations rugby yeah, matches. Yeah, yeah, that's the important things. And, and I'll, I want to do some... We'll do some more books. People seem to like looking for book recommendations, so we might do some of those, I think. I've got a stack of pond books. <laughs> I've actually got some more coming this week, so <laughs> I think I can do a pond creature one. People people ask me about that quite a lot, so that'd be quite a good one to do. I've got some interesting um, kind of nature writing ones that, um, yeah. you know, if you, if it's not necessarily from the guidebook side or the ID book, mm. sorry, side of things, you know, mm. some that are nice to just sit down with a cup of tea and have a read. I just finished one today, so uh, yeah. But yes, I guess that's it from us. So we'll see you next time, guys. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, all one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. Or if you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. This episode was edited by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.